Described as one of the most vile serial killers in South Africa, this man committed some of the most heinous and disturbing acts over a period of years. He went undetected, and it was only by sheer coincidence that he would eventually be discovered. With no inhibitions and no remorse, his victims would suffer a cruel and harsh fate at his hands. He would also become an anomaly, one of the only known serial killers in history to end the life of his own flesh and blood. This is the disturbing case of the serial killer known as Butty Boer, Stuart Vilker. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Just a quick disclaimer for today's episode. Today's episode contains many adult themes as well as graphic descriptions and is most certainly not for the faint of heart. Should you feel triggered by any of the content you have heard here today, you can find a full list of mental health resources available on my website, bellamonsoon.com. Our story begins in 1966 in the suburb of Boxburg in Johannesburg. And our story is about a baby boy who was born on November 11th. To this day, the birth name of this little boy is still unknown to the public. This baby would only spend the first few months of his life with his biological family. He was then found at the age of six months old, along with his toddler sister, abandoned in a telephone booth in Boxburg. There was a domestic worker who had found the two and she had taken them back to her employers. This one kind action on her behalf would set off a tragic chain of events that followed in the years to come. Her employer, known only to this day as Dup, decided to keep the children. However, there was no fairy tale ending in sight. During the first two years of his life, this little boy was horrifically sexually and physically abused. The pain he experienced had no bounds. During this time, his sister also disappeared, and it would only be years later when he finally would discover the truth of what had happened to her. Later in his life, he would be named, given the name Stuart. Stuart attested to much abuse being sustained throughout his early years. Many childhood experiences are hard to recall as an adult, but with great trauma, there is the possibility that Stuart held some memories of these early incidents. His accounts would also later be corroborated by the family who would adopt him. As a young boy, his genitals were burnt. He was chained outside and he was often forced to eat food out of the dog bowls. Dup would then engage in acts of bestiality with the dogs, whilst forcing little Stuart to watch. When Dup was finished, he would then force Stuart to clean his manhood with his mouth. It was at this stage in time that Stuart was incredibly malnourished, full of lice and neglected to the point that when the neighbours saw him, 
they immediately took him in. This family were known as the Vulcans. Mrs. Vulcan would later confirm Stuart's allegations of abuse suffered at the hands of Dup. The pair wanted to legally adopt Stuart and give him a safe home, but they needed the consent of his biological mother. And all Stuart would remember of this woman was an early interaction where he saw a woman he didn't know come to the house and offer him sweets, which he refused. This woman then disappeared, consequently relinquishing her parental rights and Stuart would never see her again, at least as a child. From the beginning, Stuart was a very difficult child, almost understandably so, as a result of all the alleged trauma he had experienced in his early life. Early life events play an integral role in the development of a child's personality and overall character. Stuart would go on to bite people, hit them for no apparent reason, and he would also struggle academically in school. He ended up failing grade one, and Mrs. Vulcan, with no real understanding of the true depth of Stuart's difficulties, decided to withhold his Christmas presents as a punishment. This action would have long-term ramifications for Stuart's mindset. He became furious that day, an anger he could not control, and he resolved to never make any effort in school again. Remember, he's still a child. His pillars of rational thought are not fully developed yet. He managed to make it to grade 3, but then he failed the year three times. At this point, he was sent to a special needs class. Here though, the alleged abuse would continue, and in later years he would state that he faced backlash from his peers, which was apparently encouraged by his teacher. Whether there is some truth to that, we cannot know for sure. Up until this point, he didn't realize and understand that he was adopted, but through interactions with his peers and his teachers, he would make that discovery. This knowledge further enraged him, and he lashed out at a teacher. A developing child has a limited understanding of their emotions. This is honestly just a part of growing up. For Stuart, his emotions were often fixated upon anger, resentment, hurt, and rejection as a child. These are the feelings that surrounded his experience of growth, and that's also the way in which he viewed the world and those around him. His aggressive actions towards the teacher resulted in him receiving physical punishment from the principal of the school. Remember, these were the days when corporal punishment in school was completely normal. Stewart could not really catch a break, at school or at home. Perhaps if he was raised in a different era, things may have been different. Or at least individuals may have had a different approach to his behaviour. I mean, knowing what we know now about the importance of childhood development. Outside of school, the toll of all the trauma and abuse became more evident as the years went on. It was at the age of eight that Stuart began wetting the bed every night, an action for which he was always punished. It was also at this point that he admitted to beginning to smoke marijuana regularly. It was not long after this that he was dealt yet another blow, as his adoptive father passed away, and thus he had lost the only real positive father figure that he had ever known. At the age of nine, Stuart would claim that he was sodomized by a church deacon. This would have been around the time, this would have been around the same time that he was failing in school and acting out. Remember? This trauma, if it did indeed occur, could definitely have played some role in the later crimes that Stuart would commit. The only reason I'm questioning the validity of these claims is because of the nature of Stuart and some of the remarks he would later make. 
Mrs. Vulcan, his adoptive mother, couldn't cope with his behavior. And after reaching out to the welfare department, she had Stuart sent to a reform school. Basically, a school in South Africa for problem children. I understand that it must have been a lot for her to deal with, especially after the loss of her husband. But this rejection of Stuart would just further intensify his disillusion and resentment. It was at this reformative school that he would later claim he suffered more abuse, rape and torture at the hands of his fellow classmates. This led to him running away from the school and going to live with his adoptive aunt for a month. After this point, he was sent back to his adoptive family who had moved to Port Elizabeth. Back in PE, he had commuted via bus and was instructed to appear in the magistrate's court. During this session, it was determined that he no longer had to remain in reform school, if he could finish grade 11. And so, for the first time in his life up until this point, he really played by the rules laid out. After completing grade 11, Stuart knew that he was done with school forever. Here in South Africa, we only have 12 grades, so he was only a year away from matriculating. But instead, he had left school and he had gone, like many young men of his time, to join and enlist in the army. But as one could probably imagine, things just didn't magically get better for him just because he had changed location. Things actually declined to the point that after just three months in the army, Stuart had attempted to take his own life. He was promptly medically discharged and sent home. As an adult male, he then began to work. But like many other things in his life, his occupational stint was short-lived. After injuring himself, he began to receive disability from the government. In 1984, at the age of 18, he met Lynn, who would later become his first wife. He was attracted to her and he said that he treated her well. Lynn already had a daughter from a previous relationship, but together the pair decided to have a child. This led to December of the following year, 1985, where she gave birth to their daughter, Wane. The accounts of their relationship and interactions after the birth differ, with Lynn stating that after this point, Stuart only wanted to engage in anal sex. Stuart, on the other hand, would claim that Lynn began, in his own words, to whore around and became a sex worker, often leaving him alone with the children to work the nights, many nights of the week. Regardless of the true narrative, their family life was notably unstable, to the point where the welfare department intervened. After conducting the relevant checks, they attempted to remove the older daughter, Lynn's first child, from the home. Although things were clearly not going well as it was, when Wane was five years old, the pair had the great idea to get married. Unfortunately, that band-aid did not do much for the colossal hole in the dam that was their relationship, so to speak. And so, their marriage was full of issues, violent and incredibly unhealthy. And the year that they were married would be integral as this would be the first confessed to and confirmed murder of Stuart Vulcan. And so began a disturbing and macabre chain of murders. To contextualize this for my listeners, Stuart was Afrikaans-speaking, not extremely tall, of average height, and almost stocky or pudgy in his body weight. He exuded quite a loud presence, and he was not extremely articulate, but he was able to engage and hold a conversation with others. He appeared to be quite friendly and unsuspecting. His first victim would be one of the most vulnerable in society, 
a homeless boy of around 15 years old, whose name was Montefico. He was lured and lulled into a false sense of security by Stuart, before being raped and strangled to death. His last moments would occur on school grounds in Sydenham, and Stuart would recount how he had climaxed at the exact moment that this child had passed on. For seven years, Monte's murder would remain unsolved, just another victim, easily forgotten. Stuart, however, was far from finished though. On October 3rd, 1990, after getting in a big argument with Lynn, he had targeted a sex worker, 25-year-old Virginia Geisman. He lured her in on the promise of using her services, for which they had agreed on the price of 50 rand. He had then proceeded to engage in intimate relations with her. After he was finished though, he then decided he wanted to have anal sex, which she refused. This refusal enraged Stuart, and he attacked her, strangling her with her own clothing until the life had left her body. This was also the point where his strangulation fantasies would take root. He left her body on the school grounds, discarded where she was later discovered. And just three months later, he was at it again. This time in January of 1991, where he met up with another sex worker, Mersha Papenfuss. Once again, he lured her in on the basis of using her services. The level of danger associated with this profession is astoundingly shocking and sad, especially given the fact that many in this occupation do not want to be there, but are forced due to a lack of choice and necessity. If you want to hear a little bit more about this, I do get a little bit more in depth. You can check out some of my other content, in particular, Griselda Grootboom's story. But I digress. The pair had travelled to St. George's Park, where Stuart had lost his temper when Mercia asked for upfront payment. Not a strange demand either. He had said, and I quote, Sex is a natural act which should be freely available to all. No woman or man should be allowed to charge for it or refuse it. He then proceeded to strangle her. He realized that he was still not satisfied, as they hadn't even slept together yet. But her not breathing didn't seem to bother him much, and so he engaged in the sexual actions he desired with her lifeless body. This would be the start of a new and disturbing fantasy for Stuart, one that is considered taboo in almost every country in the world. And that is necrophilia. As his actions and behaviours had escalated around these murders, so had his skills at hiding the bodies of his victims. He hid them though, not just to avoid detection, but for a far more sinister reason. He would preserve the bodies, using newspaper to prevent maggots from infesting the areas he desired. He did this so that when he returned to them, he could once again engage in the acts that he desired and relive the memories, the murders. But it wasn't really the female sex workers whose bodies he would return to over the months that followed, but rather it was his young male victims. On the 21st of October 1991, Stuart met a 14-year-old boy, who, according to him, had agreed to have intercourse with him. He then took the child to his spot, St. George's Park, it was here that the young boy demanded 50 rand. As you can imagine, this enraged Stuart, and so he began to attack him. He proceeded to rape the boy, and then strangled him with his own clothing whilst he climaxed. The young boy's body would only be discovered two years later, in 1993. Like I said, he had become really good 
at hiding the bodies. So we don't really know much about 1992. This doesn't mean that nothing occurred here, it just means that we are not privy to that information. It was in 1993 where Stuart would meet another 14 year old boy. This boy, obviously also in a difficult and desperate position, agreed to exchange sexual actions for money. However, Stuart deviated from the agreed-upon actions and instead engaged in forced and non-consensual intercourse with the boy. Instantly, the boy had threatened to tell the police. And Stuart was not having that. He strangled him and left his body in the bush by the Fort Frederick Museum. And throughout all this time, Stuart had been married. In a terribly deteriorated marriage, but a marriage nonetheless. Lynn, however, was growing tired of his behavior, and she often called the police on him for one thing or the other. Some days it was his behavior, other days it was his marijuana use. Eventually, he was admitted to the Elizabeth Donkin Psychiatric Hospital, and it was here that he was allegedly diagnosed with psychopathy. Keep in mind though that psychopathy is not an official mental health diagnosis as per the DSM, that is. The reality of this kind of diagnosis though is far more nuanced than the stereotypes portrayed in the media would lead many to believe. Stewart's stay in the psychiatric hospital was cut short though, and although he received some form of diagnosis, he was not provided with any future plan for psychotherapy to assist him in going forward. It's important to note that whilst personality disorders cannot be treated with any form of medication, there are many treatment plans available that can improve overall quality of life. But instead, Stuart was diagnosed as an alleged psychopath and sent on his way. During his observations there, he was seen by many mental health care professionals. But yet, the true darkness that lived just beyond the surface of this man remained unseen. He was a master at manipulation and pretending. Eventually, Lynn could take it no longer. And after Stuart had attempted to overdose after being discharged from the hospital, she filed for divorce. Soon after things were finalized, she had remarried and Wanae had gone to live in her home with her new husband. Stuart was allowed visitation, of course, but because he was often volatile with Lynn's new husband, his visits were limited to the pavement outside of their home. As Lynn moved on with her life, so did Stuart. He found work as a fisherman. However, as one could expect by this point, his behavioral and anger issues resulted in quite a short-lived occupation. But it was also in this field that he discovered his passion and love for the ocean. After the boy he had murdered in 1993, there appears to be a gap in his crime spree. There are two possible lines of reasoning one can assume. Either he was still active during this time and the bodies have not yet been discovered, or he was preoccupied with his new life and happy to have his fantasies exist solely in his mind. I'll leave that one up to you, the listener, to decide by the time I reach the end of this case. So now our narrative is in the early 1990s. Lynn has moved on and remarried, and Stuart has too. He found love with a coloured woman, Veronica. For my non-South Africans, the word coloured is not used as a slur, but rather to describe an entire race of people who exist. 
I only mention race here because of the main reason why Stuart chose to engage in physical and sexual endeavours with only women of colour. He held the belief that because he didn't know what his sister looked like or where she lived, he could mistakenly end up sleeping with her one day and committing the heinous act of incest. Yeah, because everything he's done up until this point wasn't bad enough, right? Moving on though, Veronica had two young sons from a previous relationship and from the get-go her family did not like Stuart, not in the least. This resulted in a very tumultuous relationship for everyone involved, a common characteristic that marked many of Stuart's interpersonal relationships. It was also around this point that Stuart would resume his criminal activities. On the 27th of July 1995, Stewart had agreed to pay 42-year-old Georgina Zwena 30 rand for her services to engage in intercourse with her. He had taken her to a local park, but instead of their agreed-upon actions, he engaged in non-consensual anal intercourse and strangled her. After killing her though, he still felt an arousal. His manhood, on the other hand though, was unable to assist him in fulfilling his desires. And so, in a fit of frustration and anger, he assaulted Georgina's body with his knife. He would leave over 20 stab wounds around her lower abdomen and nether regions. He would then engage in an even more disturbing act. He would use his knife to remove her nipples, which he then consumed. Like at this point, I wish, I wish I was just making this up. In his case, his knife and the action of him using it became symbolic to him receiving the release he had desired. Stuart had now escalated from sodomy, rape, murder and necrophilia to cannibalism. Stuart, however, was not as ignorant and simple-minded as some believed him to be. He was hyper-aware of the investigations that were going on with the victims that were found, and so he adjusted his modus operandi accordingly. He began to remove the clothing of his victims and leave it elsewhere, so as not to leave any evidence behind. Remember, these are the days of primitive DNA testing. A police officer on the case later remarked, that although Stuart Vulcan did not have a high IQ, he was streetwise and was capable of learning what he wanted to. In this instance, it was, in this police officer's words, how to become an untraceable killing machine. Two months after killing Georgina, during September of 1995, he ended up committing you guessed it, yet another disturbing crime, and one that would set him apart from other serial killers documented around the world. Let me explain. During 1995, he was living part-time in the home of Veronica with her children, and then part-time in a field behind Happy Valley, a recreational area known for its lush landscape, palms, and ponds. This was a place that Stuart often visited as a child, and so for him, he held fond memories of it. The field he was staying in also had a view of the ocean, which due to his past occupation, he had grown to love. And so he was extremely happy, comfortable, and content in this space. On the 29th of September, he visited his daughter, Wanae, who was 11 years old at the time. He had taken her out for the day, 
bringing her to Happy Valley. Not an entirely strange thing on its own. However, once there, he took her to his makeshift home in the felt. She had apparently opened up to him and told him that she was being assaulted by her stepfather, Lynn's new husband. Stuart had then performed an examination to assess whether what she had told him was indeed the truth. I mean, that in itself is creepy enough, but anyways. When he discovered somehow that she had been telling the truth, he decided to send her to heaven so that she could escape the type of life that he had to endure. And so he strangled his daughter. He would go on to keep her lifeless body next to him for months until not much remained of her. He would then bundle up her clothing into a shape that resembled her and slept next to that for the days to follow. He would vehemently deny ever assaulting her, and due to the condition of her body when it was discovered, this was unfortunately unable to be assessed. So how exactly did he get away with that? Well, he was questioned after she was declared missing, but he told police that he had left her on the steps outside of her house, and that was all that he knew. And you know what? They believed him. Despite his history, Stuart would once again go dormant until about eight months later. On the 25th of May 1996, he met another sex worker, Katrina Claassen. They went down to the beach where he proceeded to strangle her, rape her and then shove a plastic bag down her throat. He dumped her body by a wall covered in graffiti which read, people shouldn't steal. He would later state that he found this amusing, because as I previously mentioned, he believed that sex workers were stealing when they forced individuals to pay for sex. Between May and August of 1996, he met and killed another street child, had non-consensual intercourse with him, strangled him, and then dumped his body on the same grounds where he had left his first victim. That same year, the remains of Wanae were discovered, but it would be another year later until the identity of the body was known. As the year 1997 began, Veronica had received shocking news from her son, and so she had taken them to the police station. There, they had made a statement and laid charges of sodomy against Stuart. Yes, Stuart had assaulted the two young boys in the home, who potentially had viewed him as a father figure. It's important to note here that during this time, sodomy was not considered rape, and thus brought with it a lesser charge. It was only in 2007 when this law was changed, and the definition of rape was expanded. Stewart did not stick around to receive any consequences of his actions though, and he went straight back to the field. He would go into town daily, and he was often recognized by the locals, as he wore the same dirty shirt, jeans and wellington boots, with wild hair and a bushy beard. This is where his nickname, Butty Boer, translated roughly to Brother Farmer, would come about. And so life seemingly continued as normal for Stuart. On the 22nd of January 1997, 12-year-old Henry Bakers was walking home from his grandmother's house. 
Henry actually knew Stuart as he had stayed in their home at some point for a few days. A friend of Henry's saw Stuart approach him and recognised him as Butibur. Many people in the area knew of him. This friend ran after the two and asked Henry where he was going. Stuart had then told this child to mind his own business. This boy then watched his friend disappear down the road. The last time Henry was ever seen. Little did he know that the seemingly small interaction would play a large part in finally bringing this man to justice. Stuart's recollection of this last event was quite different though. He would state that the 12-year-old boy had willingly accompanied him to the field in order to learn more about sex. Stuart had then engaged in a sexual activity with this boy before forcing him to perform another sexual activity on him. After this, he had then raped Henry. Terrified as one would be, the boy had screamed, and so Stuart had strangled him. And this might have been just another unsolved murder if it wasn't for Henry's friend, who had seen them together that day. After he was declared a missing person, his friend had come forward, telling police what he had seen. The Child Protection Unit, who were also investigating the missing person's case of 1A, thus began to investigate Henry's case too. And eventually, Stuart would face the music. On the 28th of January 1997, he was arrested in connection with the disappearance of Henry. He was later released though as he had provided an alibi. This alibi was later disproved, which resulted in him being arrested again on the 31st of January. Sergeant Derek Northworthy would interview Stuart, which led to his confessions and to him admitting, in his own words, I am sick. And then the disturbing truth would begin to be heard. Stuart would admit to not only killing his daughter, but also the missing boy Henry. And in an even more disturbing twist, he stated that he had returned to the young boy's body that very morning to engage in further activities with him. He then pointed out the location of the remains of his victims, and he confessed to at least 10 other murders. Police then worked backwards to match dockets to information that Stewart provided. Dr. Mickey Pistorius, the psychologist and forensic expert, was brought in to assess Stewart. She noted that his presenting disposition as gentle and quiet stood in stark contrast to the character who committed these crimes. She noticed his high sexual connection to these crimes, where he even excused himself during the interview to pleasure himself in the bathroom. She also believed that Stuart would have lacked the ability to stop himself from engaging in sexual acts with his daughter. She maintained the assertion that he could not be rehabilitated. Stuart was incredibly calm and unperturbed during his trial and he only faltered when Wane's skull was brought into the courtroom as evidence. He asked for an adjournment and ended up in the bathroom. No, not in tears though. Preoccupied with another activity that was highly inappropriate given the situation. On the 23rd of January 1998, Stuart Vulcan was found guilty and sentenced to seven life sentences. He was only 31 years old at the time of sentencing. He heard his fate and burst into tears. The judge made the remarks that whilst he understood the traumatic past of Stuart, he found it hard to believe that every single person Stuart had come into contact with had abused him. The judge also mentioned that if the death penalty was around, he would have received it. 
Sergeant Nosworthy located Stewart's biological mother and connected them via a telephone call whilst he was in prison. He also listened in on this call. Stewart had sobbed on the phone and for the first time in his life used the word mommy. His mother also admitted on the phone that she had come to reclaim his sister, who was alive and well but she chose to leave him. Stewart requested to serve his time in a facility that offered mental health services, so that one day, in his own words, if I am ever allowed free, I can also live life as a normal person. So where exactly is he now, you may ask? He is currently in St. Albans Prison in Port Elizabeth. He says he suffers from nightmares and the ghosts of his victims haunt him. But I have an update for you. Just recently though, in a shocking turn of events, he decided to apply for parole. He has served almost 25 years in jail, a life sentence in South Africa, and he wants out. The expert witnesses who testified in his case in 1997 and 1998 all held the same belief, that he should never be released from prison because he would undoubtedly resume his inconceivable acts. Renowned forensic psychologist Gerard Labashkachny is of the same belief and had said that it would be irresponsible for authorities to even entertain the idea of releasing Stuart back into society. The idea of using prison behavior as a means to decide whether someone is eligible for release cannot be accurate in predicting behavior outside of prison walls. I mean, especially considering the fact that the world now is a far different place to the world he operated and existed in almost 25 years ago. Nevertheless, his application has been submitted to the Minister of Justice and Correctional Services. And so, we wait for that verdict. In the meantime, though, let's try to understand the mind behind the macabre. Stuart Vulcan is almost a poster boy for the stereotypical serial killer. He had a difficult childhood and a history of dysfunction over the years, lacking empathy for his victims and showing no remorse. But there is so much more to his narrative. The thing about serial killers that is the scariest, in my opinion at least, is that there's not just one specific thing that can be attributed to driving serial killers to do what they do. And for that reason, it's not really possible to fully rehabilitate an individual, as we're not even sure what's causing this type of behavior in the first place. In Stewart's case, it is evident that his childhood played a massive and integral role in his development. He experienced so much abuse at the hands of adults who were supposed to care for him. He grew up without experiencing true, unconditional love and care. In a later interview with Gerard Labishkachny, he would state his motives for the murders. He had stated that he had experienced sexual abuse as a child and he had turned to God, but God forsook him. He thus developed the desire to take revenge on God by committing the same crimes that he had experienced. In his own words, he had said, I wanted to be God. Whilst he was committing the murders, he would tell his victims to shout to God for help. He got off on that control that he exerted in that moment. He stated that it would make him happy, seeing his victims submit to him. And he would say, and I quote, You see, God, I got you. This desire for power and control is quite characteristically linked to the act of rape, something that is featured in all of his murders. 
His innate desires that drove these murders would also reveal further insights into his victim profiles. Keep in mind that in the 90s in South Africa, technology was not nearly as advanced as it is today, and DNA analysis in its more primitive form was only introduced in around 1995. So although linking together crime scenes and victims is much easier now, back then there was not that much to go on. When we look at his victim profiles, Stewart had two main types of victims. Young boys, often adolescents and younger, and female sex workers. And so you may ask the question, did his victim types have anything to do with his sexuality? I do feel that in Stewart's case, it was less about the gender of his victim and more about finding the type of victim who matched his fantasy. In the case of young boys, it was about punishing them and doing to them what had been done to him. Perhaps he was reenacting his childhood trauma, but taking control instead of being the victim. It's a strange concept for many to understand, as one would be led to believe that if you had experienced some sort of abuse as a child, you would grow up into an adult and not want to inflict that same kind of harm onto another child. But then again, that would most likely be a realization that stems from a more psychologically healthy individual. I also think at this point it's vital to make the following differentiation to avoid any confusion. Yes, it is true that many offenders who harm children have a history of childhood abuse, but at the same time it's important to note that not all individuals who were abused as children will grow up to inflict harm upon children. I cannot express how important this differentiation is to make. I'm not really sure whether Stuart felt any real guilt over the murders. He would claim that he covered them in branches. He would claim that he covered his young male victims in branches so that they could go to heaven and that he visited their graves or rather the spots where he left their bodies and asked for forgiveness. But then keep in mind, in the next moment, he would be engaging in sexual acts with their corpses. Yeah, so there's that. And so we get to his second victim type, female sex workers. To him, it is believed that they represented his first wife, Lynn, whom he claimed would sleep around after a few years into their marriage. And perhaps they even represented his mother who abandoned him. If you do believe the notion in the latter part of my statement, then the gruesome acts he committed upon his oldest victim, who was 42 years old, might make more sense. Although these two victim types differed significantly, what remains in common is that he targeted those who were vulnerable, in one sense or the other. And although the victims always differed, his modus operandi was always similar. He would later state that he loved the act of strangulation as a killing method. This method in itself is extremely intimate, as the perpetrator can feel the warmth and the blood coursing through his victim's veins. Stuart would watch his victims as their eyes bulged and their lips would swell and turn blue, and it was always at this point that he would climax. It's also more than likely that he could be described as a sadist. Sadistic personality disorder is no longer in the DSM for the main reason that mental health professionals believed that it would be used in legal settings to excuse sadistic behavior. 
Stuart's sadistic tendencies, from what is known though, seem to be more linked to his sexual activity. So I would be more inclined to consider something along the lines of a sexual sadism disorder, which is part of a grouping known as paraphilic disorders. Basically, sexual sadism disorder is the condition of experiencing arousal in the response to the extreme pain, suffering or humiliation of others. Many of the times there is a preference for anal sex as it often hurts and humiliates the victim even more. I feel like all of that perfectly sums up Stuart's feelings towards his victims in a nutshell. But Stuart's diagnoses could possibly not even end there. There are elements of necrophilia as well as cannibalism that fit his sordid narrative. His crimes and fantasies evolved as the months and years progressed. And at the end of the day, he recalled his past actions with no emotions, no tears, no hesitation. He even laughed when asked about the episode of eating human flesh and stated that he only wished he had cooked it first. Although he was not of high intelligence, he was smart enough to monitor his crime scenes, making notes of what he could do better. When he was later asked by Gerard what he thought of the police on the scene, he had responded, Some were good, but they weren't good at catching me. I waited to see how long it took to be caught. He planned his attacks methodically, searching out a quite an isolated location, and he returned to some of his victims, violating their corpses on multiple occasions. Like Cedric Markey, who I discussed two weeks ago, he committed his crimes in a comfort zone of sorts, a five-kilometer radius. And at that time, no one even knew that there was a serial killer in action. Like I always say, you can never truly know the depth of darkness that exists behind the faces of the people you know, the people you love, or even the people you pass on the street on a daily basis. Of course, it's normal to feel a degree of sympathy or empathy towards young Stuart and all that he went through. But it's also normal to feel a strong level of hatred and disgust at the adult that he became. It brings to light the ever-present psychological debate. Nature versus nurture. Until next time, my loves, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!